Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 302. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the Satanic Panic. Today, we're going to be talking about the Satanic Panic. Uh, this is going to be a newer one. This is going to be a newer one. Um, in previous years, I have not talked about this. However, because I do teach a rap history class, uh, I do talk, talk quite a bit about hip-hop, rap music, gangster rap. And so we're going to be changing up a little bit, uh, talking about the Satanic Panic. And frankly... Um, Considering this is coming out the week of Halloween, eh, why not? It's kind of interesting. And it's really been in the news lately, thanks to things like uh, the newest season of Stranger Things and uh, other things we'll talk about. So with that said, uh, go on to Moodle, click that PowerPoint, and we'll be good to go. Uh, yes, as the, as the title slide says, we're mainly talking about the 80s, but the 70s and 90s are also involved. Um, I should also mention I am going to talk a little bit about my own experience with this. Uh, growing up as a kid in the 80s, and particularly the 90s, uh, I was born in 84, so I was kind of young for the 80s, but I remember some of the stuff coming about in the 90s. So with that said, go ahead. So go over one slide. Uh, what was the Satanic Panic? What was the Satanic Panic? Um, well, in the early 80s and 90s, there was a whole lot of accusations and fear uh, it's one of those manias that happens from time to time, a craze, uh, one of these big fearful crazes that happens in U.S. history. And regarding the idea that the devil is at work in the U.S. and Canada, like an underground conspiracy against quote-unquote good Christians, against quote-unquote good Christians. And it's said that there's a lot of institutions that are involved, and a lot of people are involved in covering it up. Uh, that's one thing they really say a lot during the Satanic Panic, this idea that you can't trust institutions, you can't trust the media, uh, they're hiding things, there's all sorts of things being hidden. This is a very big concept. It involves a whole lot of different ideas, but in essence, uh, for the sake of this class, we're focusing on three major areas. Uh, three major areas, being heavy metal music and the music industry in general, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, along with a little bit of nerd culture, and also daycares. And daycares actually has the most litigation. That's one we're going to focus upon first. Now, if you go over one slide, you'll see some of the media attention for this. It's kind of ironic that the uh, Satanic Panic gets so much media attention, where believers in the Satanic Panic say that the media is actually the one giving some of the um, messages from the devil. So, go figure. But what's unique about the Satanic Panic in regards to other manias and you know these type of fears, witch hunts, uh, the you know the Red Scares, all these type of scares that come up in U.S. history, is that generally one outside race or ethnic group is not really targeted. Uh, most of these other manias have some element of like you know we're targeting uh, African Americans or we're talking you know targeting immigrants or people of a different religion. Uh, that's not so much on the Satanic Panic because they're mainly saying that anybody could be Satanic. You know, it's the idea that all of a sudden, oh my God, white people can't trust white people. The Satanists could be anyone. But probably the biggest and the longest lasting of these accusations is that your children are being targeted. This is the element that really has the most staying power and really defines the entire panic. Uh, this idea that middle class children are being targeted by a secret cabal sticks around for a very long time very long time, this sense of fear that, oh my gosh, middle-class children, they are being targeted. You still hear this from time to time. There are various manias. I mean, if you're ever on social media, uh, you'll hear about all this stuff about, oh my gosh, you know, nice, clean, decent children, meaning generally middle-class children, are being targeted. 
It changes pop culture for a while and also sticks around for a long time in certain Christian evangelical circles, even though most of the most strident claims of the satanic panic have long since been uh, disproven. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about the religious element in this class. I'm talking some about it, but um, next semester when I teach, uh, well, I don't know when you're hearing this, so in the future I'm teaching a class about Christianity in the United States. I'll talk much more about it then. But it also, the panic really changes how Dungeons and Dragons and heavy metal are viewed in general society, uh, particularly Dungeons and Dragons. It's very hard for uh, a lot of the mainstream, you know, general public's perception of Dungeons and Dragons to be separate from uh, the satanic panic. So if we go over one slide, let's talk a little bit about background. Uh, you'll see a picture there of the Salem Witch Trials, something you're probably familiar with. Uh, the, mes- the reason I bring up Salem is that the United States has a very long history of like beliefs of spiritual warfare. You know, the demons or devils are after people, uh, witchcraft, you know, kind of singling out the other throughout its history. I mean, we can go as early as the 16-whatevers when the U.S. was a like colony, let alone whenever it becomes a proper country when it gets its independence. Tons of witch trials and stuff like that in the days of colonies. But a key thing to remember is in the early days, the group that was targeted was generally an other, an outside group, not something from the from the pious mainstream. Uh, generally, the people targeted were things like slaves, women, Native Americans. and the Salem witch trials, it's people who might be religious dissenters or may not uh, be in lockstep with some of, the, uh, some of the leadership in the colonies. And these, these people who are targeted generally don't have that much political or societal power. Generally, they are outsiders. They are outsiders. You know, people like slaves or women or Native Americans, they don't really have much status in the colonial society. And so it's this idea that you're, you have a pious mainstream. They say the majority of the people involved, they're a pious mainstream against a foreign, a foreign invader, a smaller uh, foreign invader. So they think, like, you know, the devil is not a very strong per- individual. It's not a very large conspiracy. It's the idea that there are these small segments, these small um, covens, if you want to use the term for witches, that they need to root out. Now, this belief lessens a lot thanks to things like the Great Awakening and also more reliance on science. But um, I do need to iterate, it never really goes away. That's something I've realized as as I study uh, various Christian movements, particularly Protestant movements in the United States. uh, Nothing ever really goes away in the U.S., particularly with religious beliefs. Uh, It never really goes away. It's an undercurrent. It may not be as evident in times before, but pretty much any belief in U.S. history never fully goes away. So just know that undercurrent going on this idea that, you know, oh my gosh, there might be spiritual forces attacking us, uh, attacking a certain people. Uh, the immediate elements behind the satanic panic, though, of the 80s really have to do with the baby boomers, and particularly the first children of baby boomers, that'd be Generation X. If you go to one slide, you'll look at 1950s theology. Now, baby boomers, in general, these are people who are born after World War II, uh, from 46 to the 60s, thereabouts. Uh, they grew up in a time of unprecedented wealth and stability. The wealth of the baby boomers, the, the level of stability that uh, particularly white baby boomers have, but honestly, across the board, um, you know, for African Americans and even poor Americans, they seem to be doing better in the 50s. Basically, um, incomes are higher across the board, especially for the white middle class. The white middle class was exceptionally stable and wealthy during the 50s. Uh, also, more white middle class moms have stay at home moms for the first time. Most, sorry, most white middle class families have stay-at-home moms for the first time. Um, Beforehand, it's not too uncommon for 
middle-class families to have a working mother as well. Uh, your wealthier families might have a stay-at-home mom, but now it kind of becomes viewed as the uh, expectation. Now, Christianity is also really, really pushed in this time uh, as kind of a cure to communism. Basically, the idea being that communism is theoretically atheist. If you like go with Marx or whatever, it says that you know uh, Christianity is uh, religion is the opioid of the masses. And so they really push church attendance, not necessarily piety, not necessarily piety, not necessarily like, I don't want to say earnest beliefs because it's very hard to prove what is and isn't an earnest belief for people. But something like attending a church on a regular basis was something that was very pushed uh, because it was viewed if you're a good church attender, you must be a good American and a good Christian. The idea that you can't be a communist if you go to church regularly. Now, because they are preaching to such a very wide group, and it's really like tied to civic responsibility, uh, the theology that is taught in these churches during this time period is very light on the supernatural, uh, very light on things like the demons and the devils and uh, you know spiritual warfare, that sort of stuff. Um, I'm not saying it's completely, completely not there, but for the most part, most mainstream, mainline. Uh, Protestant, even Catholic churches, most mainstream Christian churches, I'd even include Jewish uh, synagogues in here as well. Uh, they're not really preaching too much about like, you know, the devil's a physical being or a spiritual being who is attacking people. Uh, more in line with something like The Power of Positive Th Thinking uh, by Norman Vincent Peale. If you're unfamiliar with this book, this is very much this kind of, a, you know, if you think well about something, if you have a really good attitude, if you believe good things are going to happen, good things are going to happen. Uh, not so much about like you know getting God's blessing or praying or anything like that. It's just if you're a good person who who hopes for the best stuff, if you believe it, it can manifest in your mind, and then it'll come true in reality. And so the hope is the hope is that uh, by really pushing this sort of Christianity, middle class, you know, they're going to have a very safe predictable lifestyle, it's going to go on for the baby boomers. The hope is these kids are going to get kind of ingrained in this kind of, you know, very safe, leave it to beaver type lifestyle, and it's going to continue on. Now, as you're probably very aware, and we already talked about in this class, there's a ton of backlash to this, uh, particularly during the 60s, things like the hippies, the civil rights movement. Uh, there's a backlash against uh, this idea of the country is losing this way. So I, I need to iterate there is a backlash to the backlash. Uh, repeat, this. there's a backlash to the backlash. There's a backlash to things like hippies and counterculture and civil rights people and whatnot. Because a lot of boomers are actually part of this backlash. Remember, the U.S. tends to be pretty conservative. And the Vietnam had high approval number among the young people least likely to be drafted. So like upper and middle class um, white people, for lack of a better return, uh, who kind of make up the core of this very conservative set. And by the time we get into the 70s, a lot of these young people are starting to get married and to have children. Uh, the boomers, they've grown up. It's 20 years later. They've gone to college. You know, they get married. They have children. The problem for it, the problem that ha they realized pretty early on is that the economy had changed a lot since the 50s. Society had too, but particularly the economy. For instance, for reasons of either you know economic or self-value, a lot of women either chose or were not able to stay to be stay-at-home mothers. Okay, so all of a sudden you're having a lot more children being put into daycare. 
Uh, baby boomers, you know, they typically grew up with their parents, with a mom staying at home. Now they're having to bring their child to daycare, either because, you know, the mother wishes to work or the father wishes to work. Uh, you have some stay-at-home dads during this time period. Not a huge number, but, but some. I have to mention them. Or the fact that they just cannot, it's not financially viable to just have one parent working, one staying at home. In either circumstance, there is plenty of mom guilt, parent guilt over leaving your child in the care of somebody else. That is as normal as anything. Even in the best situation, it's normal to wonder if you're doing the right thing. I mean, my son, right now, he is 19 months old. My wife works, I work, we both have jobs, and so we leave him at a daycare. It's an amazing daycare. They have great workers. We can check in on him anytime. But you still wonder, am I doing the right thing? You know, even though this is possibly the best thing. So it's very normal to have unease about daycares. Now, also, the Protestant church had changed since the 1950s as well. Because here's the thing, with, with something like the power of positive thinking, the reality is, no matter how well you think, no matter how positive you might think, bad things happen. That's just life. Sometimes bad things happen. Now, the thing of power positive thinking was telling you is, if something bad happens, it's your fault, you know, because you weren't thinking positive enough about it. But, you know, sometimes life happens. Likewise, you know, these, these boomers who grew up in these churches, they might have been said, you know, hey, I'm not living the life I expected. You know, I was told, you know, this is kind of this formula for having a, a nice, easy life. You know, you, you go to church, you, you, you read your Bible, you say your prayers, you get married, get a job, have your 2.5 children, and you're going to have the white picket fence. And now they're realizing that's just not obtainable. So they figure out what gives, what gives. And what happens is kind of a, a reevaluation of some of the ideas of Christianity, particularly Protestant Christianity, mixed with elements of the hippie movement, mixed with elements of the hippie movement, counterculture movement. If you go over one side, you will see the Jesus freaks. Uh, it's a lot of different names that they get called. They get called the Jesus people or the Jesus movement or the Jesus freaks. Uh there's a lot to get in here. There's a lot to get in here. It's kind of a critique of the um, older method of, of Christianity, of their parents, this idea of a very staunch, non-supernatural, um, you know, straight-laced, suit-and-tie type of Christianity. This is kind of more like we're taking some of the energy of the counterculture but marrying it to traditional religious beliefs. There's a lot to get in here. Uh, like I said, whenever I teach my History of Christianity class, this will be a whole day just on the Jesus movement people, or the Jesus freaks, whatever you want to call them. But in essence, it states that Christianity needs more of like mysticism, more more supernatural, more counterculture. It's a, it's a mix of counterculture, rejection of the 50s, and all sorts of charismatic stuff. As part of that, the, the Jesus people, the Jesus freaks, really put more emphasis upon like signs and wonders, uh, miracles, things that cannot be easily explained. And uh, also, it really gets linked a lot to eschatology. Eschatology is a fancy word. Eschatology is a fancy word. Uh, feel free to share it with your parents or your preacher or your priest or something. Uh, they may know it. They, they should know it. They'll be like, dang, that's a, that's a pretty expensive word. How, how did you learn that one? Um, eschatology literally just means the study of the end of the world. Uh, the study of like an apocalypse, book of revelation type stuff. 1950s churches didn't really talk too, too much about it. Um, however, in 1971, a new book that comes out by Hal Lindsey, if you go over one slide, uh, you'll see Hal Lindsey. It's called The Late Great Planet Earth. 
It's called The Late Great Planet Earth. It comes out in 1971. Um, it argues that the Book of Revelation is going on in modern-day America. He basically says, hey, if you look at the Book of Revelation, you look at all the stuff going on in modern-day America, um, yeah, we're, we're definitely in the end times. Jesus is coming back any second now. I should also mention this really plays into things about nuclear anxiety and the Cold War. Um, even though the 60s and particularly the 70s were a fairly, mm, not, not the worst time for the Cold War, it wasn't really running hot, there's still an underlying fear of, oh my gosh, at any second, the Russians could launch nukes or the Americans could launch nukes, and it's the end of the world as we know it. And, and that's something that uh, the late great planet Earth kind of gets into. Basically, Lindsay argues that what's going on in um, in Russia, you know, nuclear bombs could be part of Revelation, that sort of stuff like that. Now, what does this all mean? What does this all mean? Well, boomers, some boomers who grew up in the 50s, who weren't feeling very happy about how their lives turned out and felt guilty about sending their kids to daycare, they now have a, a new fear, Satan. In fact, Lindsay really doubles down on this, if you look over to the right, with his second book, um, Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth, which isn't just talking about, uh, you know, end of the world stuff. He's just basically saying Satan is behind pretty much everything and is trying to attack Christians. This idea that Satan is not a, you know, a theoretical force or a literary force, it's now much more of a personified, uh, maleficent individual that is trying to do horrible things and is very active, and is very active, as opposed to the religion that most of these boomers who grew up in the 50s, which is very mamby-pamby, think nice thoughts. Now they're saying, oh my gosh, it's war. Now, the first real main shot of the modern satanic panic, if you go over one slide, has to talk about daycares. Talks about daycares. Daycares becomes a real hotbed for a lot of the satanic panic stuff. Um, if you look there, there's an article, The Demons of Edmonton. One that's really interesting, though, is a book on the right. It's a children's book I remember seeing in my daycare <laughs> growing up as a kid. Uh, don't make me come back, mommy, which basically is arguing that there are daycares that do satanic rituals to children, and it's it's a it's a it's a horrifying picture book. Uh, I cannot recommend it, but yeesh. Uh, the first main shot, though, of this kind of uh, satanic panic comes. Go if we go one more slide in 1980 with the publication of Michelle Remembers. Michelle Remembers. You'll see a, a lot of the covers right there. Uh, Michelle Remembers is a book about a baby boomer. She's like in her 30s when this book comes out. When she remembers, and I'll say remember in quotation marks, uh, the the suffering she went through as a child. Okay? Uh, to say it's questionable material is definitely an uh, understatement. Go over one side, you'll see Michelle Smith, the titular Michelle, and Lawrence Padzer, the guy who wrote the book. Um, he is a psychologist. Basically, she is one of his patients. And basically, through hypnosis, uh, Michelle remembers a lot of the stuff that she went through as a four or five-year-old because of her mother and also because of a cult. Uh, she said that basically she, her mom was part of a cult in Canada. I should mention these two are both Canadians. Um, basically, she says, no, I, I, you know, my mom was part of a cult. All sorts of horrible abuse had happened to me. And uh, I even remember one time that the cult actually summoned the devil, like summoned the devil devil. Uh, Padzer writes this up, writes this up. He, he writes this as a book, basically saying that uh, this is, 
you know, this is something she went through, this idea that, uh, you know, these kind of old beliefs of the children, these repressed memories, they can come through hypnosis, and more importantly, they can be verified. There's nothing that you could um, argue with them about. That's what he claimed. Um, I should mention, none of her claims ever were verified. Um, her mom was like, uh, yeah, no, that didn't happen. No cult. Uh, there was not a lot of uh, physical evidence for any of her accusations. But still, Padzer writes this up as a book. He writes it up as a book. Um, I, I should mention there have been other stories of activity about, like, a quote-unquote Church of Satan, this idea that there is a organized church for Satanists. Um, there, that had been around before Michelle Remembers comes out, but this really cements it. This is the one that gets all the attention. Uh, the earlier stuff about a Church of Satan was like stuff within the, the church world, maybe evangelical world, had its dubious elements of truth. Uh, Michelle Remembers is very much a mainstream book. This is a mainstream book. She's not particularly religiously tied to any organization. Uh, pa- uh, Pazder uh, actually later becomes her husband, which also might put some <laughs> accuracy questions into play there. Um he argues that, you know, basically I'm an expert of cults. He's like, I'm an expert of cults. He starts making the talk show circuit very, very early, very early on in the eighties. He becomes a mainstay on a lot of talk shows where he talks about cults. He says that uh, satanic activity is very common, uh, very common. It's, it's very much a regular part of child abuse. You know, most child abuse has something to do with satanic uh, rituals or, or horrible churches, stuff like that. Uh, this idea that strangers are going to be the one who are most likely to abuse your child, which um, is is not accurate, actually. Generally, people who abuse children, or it's like they're a family member or a close friend. Um, not saying it never happens with strangers, but it's, it's much less common than a family member. But Pazner, his big claim is that her experience probably isn't all that unique. He's basically saying, no, no, no. What she went through, um, a lot of people have gone through. And he says it's very common. Now, remember, she's talking about it happening to her in the 50s. But what really goes overdrive is like, oh, my gosh, if this was happening so much in the 50s when things were nice and clean and decent, how much more is it happening in this godless 70s and 80s? And this really goes into overdrive. If you go over one more, in the McMartin preschool case of the early 80s. Now, McMartin Preschool is a regular preschool. It's a regular preschool. It's a daycare uh, in California near Los Angeles. And basically, one mom of some of the children, actually, I think she only has one kid there, uh, accuses the daycare workers of doing all sorts of horrible things, like kidnapping children, animal sacrifices, and a whole host of other satanic activities. Um, The mother who makes these accusations actually was schizophrenic. It actually turns out she was schizophrenic. Uh, She was getting treatment. Actually, she was not getting medication, but she was starting to get treatment because it comes out after this comes out that she is indeed schizophrenic. Yet the fact that she's schizophrenic doesn't really seem to uh, dissuade any of the authorities from really investigating this. Because a year earlier in Kern County, which was in Bakersfield, which is not a very big city, uh, there was a slew of accusations of satanic child abuse rings. Uh, basically, all of a sudden in Bakersfield, there seems to be a lot of accusations of child abuse, of satanic child abuse. Uh, the satanic ailment probably had come because uh, about a year earlier, in like 1980, so when Michelle Remembers comes out, um, social workers in Bakersfield had received training that stated that satanic ritual was a major cause of child abuse, particularly child sex abuse. And they even used the book uh, Michelle Remembers as evidence. 
So basically, what ends up happening is Michelle remembers looks like an accurate case because of circular logic on a mock. Like, the social workers say, well, this will be real because it said in Michelle Remembers, and the Michelle Remembers gets viewed as real because all these social workers are making accusations. That happens in Bakersfield. There's really no big trials in that. It's just a bunch of accusations and a bunch of uh, investigations. Nothing ever comes of it. Nothing ever goes to trial. However, the thing is, when the police start investigating McMartin, so, you know, a year later, they started investigating McMartin. Uh, a lot of the daycare workers are indeed arrested because the police sent letters to the other parents of the daycare telling them that an investigation is going on and can their children collaborate it. Um, kids are not, I mean, they, they said a lot during the 80s that children, you know, they can't lie. They will always remember stuff exactly as it happened. That may not be the case. In fact, it wasn't really the case. There was no physical evidence, like no physical evidence whatsoever um, about what was going on at the daycare, at the preschool. And additionally, uh, the children were generally very led in their testimonies. Like you're getting very young children, like three or four years old, who are making all sorts of accusations uh, that probably weren't accurate, but they're being led on by investigators. There's, a, there's That's an interrogation technique or... If you're ever involved in a trial, or let's say you watch a, a cop show or a law show, they always say, like, oh, there's a leading question. There's a way that you can get people to answer stuff if you kind of lead them on, particularly children. So the accusations really go ludicrous and outlandish very quickly. Uh, the children, um, you know, they, they, they testify that they saw witches flying around. Uh, they were taken on airplanes to orgies with celebrities, and that there are underground tunnels underneath the daycare where they did a lot of the rituals. Um, yeah, the idea that they, they took an airplane during the school day and then they came back, that there's no proof of that. But also, the, the one that they even really try to investigate um, is, it, is the tunnels underneath the daycare. And, and there were no tunnels underneath the daycare. They looked at plans. They looked around. Of course, it could be said, you know, oh, those horrible Satanists, they probably uh, hit it all. Hit it all. Now, none of these things actually happened that I mentioned, but it doesn't seem to matter because it gives credibility to the fear that, oh my gosh, good, good, clean, decent children are under attack. You know, plus this plays into parental guilt about daycare because of economic circumstance. And you have the whole anti-feminist backlash, which claims that, you know, women need to be at home and that satanic child abuse is judgment against women because they, they, you know, they were insolent, they forgot, you know, God's laws for women, that sort of stuff. Uh, if you go over one slide, you'll see what ends up happening with the trials. What ends up happening with the trials is that all of them are found innocent. Um, everybody's completely found innocent because there was nothing. But it really ruins the reputations of most of these workers. Uh, a lot of these teachers have their lives ruined because of these accusations. Now, it also seems that this whole satanic cavity had been proven. They're like, oh my gosh, satanic activity had been proven. It validates all sorts of fears. This idea that, oh my gosh, we have you know daycares and children are testifying to this stuff. All of a sudden, this dubious case seemed to verify all sorts of huge institutions and beliefs. And I need to iterate, this is going on at the mainstream level. It's not just like religious folks or fundamentalists who are really getting involved with this. Now it seems that everybody's caring about this. And there's a lot of talk about like 
not only protecting children from satanic individuals, but also spiritual forces as all as well. Uh, a good example of this is focus on the family. Uh, focus on the family. Uh, they're a, a group that kind of kind of leans. Well, it doesn't kind of. It, it does lean right wing. Um, formed by a guy by the name of uh, James Dobson, who is a psychologist, basically said that children should be disciplined. Um, in the eighties, he actually does an interview with Ted Bundy, uh, the horrible serial killer. I'm telling you, it's, it's Halloween. Somebody's talking to you all about the all about the the horrible people. Uh, Ted Bundy, the horrible serial killer. The night before he is. Uh, put to death, you know, he is executed. Uh, basically, he claims that uh, pornography was the reason why he committed all those murders. He's like, oh, you know, pornography is the reason why I did all that stuff. It started out with just porn, and then that let all sorts of demons into me, and uh, it just it made me totally insatiable. Maybe totally insatiable, and so oh my gosh, I, I just had to start killing people, because that's what I had to do. It also argues the slippery slope. Uh, Bundy and a lot of these other religious groups argue the slippery slope this idea that, you know, hey, you know, yeah, a little rock music or, or magic, sophomore chronography may not be all that bad, but you know what? It starts a child towards harder and harder things. Kind of like the idea of the gateway drug. So, like, even innocent-looking stuff, like watching the Smurfs. Okay, guys, I cannot, I'm not making this up. I knew so many kids when I was growing up who weren't allowed to watch the Smurfs because their parents were like, oh my gosh, it's got magic in it, and something having magic in it is just a couple steps away from uh, them becoming devil worshippers. And I should mention, it should have been going on ever since the 70s, as part of this whole Jesus people, Jesus movement, there have been an undercurrent in certain charismatic evangelical circles claiming that the devil was behind all sorts of stuff. And so whenever the satanic panic went mainstream, uh, these experts, quote-unquote, were ready. Probably my favorite example of this, just for sheer wackiness, if you go over one slide, you will see a book written by a man by the name of Mike Wernke. Uh, it's entitled The Satan Seller. The Satan Seller. Comes out in 1972. Uh, basically, he claims that he was a high priest in Satanism during the 1960s. Um, it's kind of interesting because the time period where he says he's a he's a high priest in the Satan Satanic Church, which he claims is very big and very powerful and gives him all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, he basically, he says when he's nineteen to twenty years old, so like the the year ish, not even a year, the couple couple months after he drops out of college, but before he enters into the Navy, he claims that not only does he join the Church of Satan, he becomes like a high priest in the Church of Satan. And he, he claims in the book to have all sorts of sordid you know, details about orgies and the like, but it's actually kind of funny because if you read it, he kind of holds off on the like really sordid stuff. Uh, likewise, he's like, oh, then one night we were about to like you know do a human sacrifice, but then, uh, oh, you know, I, I just couldn't do it because I left. And so you know, he's like, oh, I, I could have raped this person, but I didn't, or I could have killed this person, and I didn't. So he actually holds off on a lot of the details. Talks about how he like uh, you know he wore all these crazy clothes and uh, was getting people in all these drugs stuff like that. Uh, turns out though, uh, <laughs> the book was all lies. The book was all lies. It uh, it got disproven actually by other Christian groups who actually did an investigation. Um, turns out, for instance, like he claims that throughout the sixties he had long hair. That is not true at all. Uh, there are photographs of him throughout all this time period where he has like a crew cut. Likewise, his girlfriend, later wife, was like, um, yeah, no, we were together during that time period. Like, I remember him dropping out of college and, you know, I, I saw him fairly regularly. So, no, that, that wasn't, he wasn't doing that. 
Um, he doesn't have long hair. If you go over one slide, you will see pictures of Mike Wernke, what he does later in life. This is so weird. He claims to be this expert on like satanic stuff and that, oh, he used to be a high priest in the Satan church. He does later on grow his hair, of course. Uh, but he does try to become a comedian, weirdly enough. After the popularity of this book, he tries to become a speaker and a comedian, kind of like the Christian Weird Al that's really weird. <laughs> Um, he puts out several al- albums, like comedy albums, but also music albums. Uh, he goes through a lot of different wives and a lot of divorces, which is kind of interesting in of itself. Um, he's actually weirdly semi-active. Uh, you can Google him, and you can contact him. I, I think he'll zoom in for people. Um, I didn't want to pay him to zoom in for this class because, well, here's the funny thing. His website still claims it's all legit. Like his website claims that no, he was still a high priest in the Church of Satan, even though that's um, that's that's not accurate. Um, he does look like a total nerd. Um, he he never looked like a like a suave Satanist. Okay, like in the book, it talks about him being like, oh yeah, I was I was dressed good and like you know I got all these women and it, I, I don't know what he's going for here. I have no idea why he did it. Uh, whenever he gets caught by uh, uh, a Christian publication. Uh, he claims that uh, he changed some names and details, but the basic idea is true. But, and this is probably the most important part for these sort of accusations of the satanic panic, the number of people who were saved, quote-unquote, got converted or had their lives changed could not be denied. This idea that, you know, maybe the facts are kind of dubious with the situation, but you can't argue with changed lives. Uh, another example of this, probably my favorite in terms of just crazy, crazier claims, it would be John Todd. Uh, John Todd, if you go over one slide, you'll see pictures of John Todd and also how he gets uh, depicted in Jack Chick comics. Uh, John Todd claims to be an ex-Druid high priest. He makes even crazier claims. Uh, he claims that he was a member of the Illuminati. He was like, yeah, I was part of the Illuminati. Um, uh, loads of Christian leaders are in on it, like even mainstream you know, Christian leaders. He's like, you can't trust all Christians because some of them are part of the Illuminati. Uh, he's also very much against uh, Christian rock music, very much against Christian rock music. Uh, basically, there's, there's like bands that play rock music, but it's Christian. Uh, he claims it's uh, to enslave otherwise good Christian youth with its demonic beat. With its demonic beat. He basically claims that uh, the beat itself is evil. Like, the way that the, the music goes, it is evil. And I knew people growing up who believed this. I remember going to a conference once with my parents, and they said that, uh, you know, the offbeat in music, it, it, it makes your brain struggle. That's what's wrong with rock music. It's got all these offbeats, and your brain can't put it together. When your brain's not put it together, you're more susceptible for demons. And my parents actually laughed. Because maybe some of y'all are musicians, too. But um, offbeats are very common in music. Uh, it's just just a different beat. I remember my parents afterwards like going back and forth naming all the religious songs they could name that had offbeats. That there was even some that they sung at the conference. So go figure. Uh, he also claimed that he was a member of the Illuminati. He claimed he bribed all sorts of people. Uh, for instance, Chuck, Chuck Smith, who was the founder of Calvary Chapel, which is theoretically seen as the home of Christian rock music. Seen as the home of Christian rock music. Um, he was unhinged. For instance, he starts attacking Wernke. Uh, basically, he says that uh, Todd, basically Todd says that Wernke has stolen his testimony, that yeah, Wernke is a liar because he stole everything that happened from me, John Todd, the reality guy. Uh, he also claims that uh, John F. Kennedy is still alive and that while he was president, John Todd was his personal warlock. It was that he was his personal warlock. So, 
Yeah, there, there's that. Uh, what ends up happening to Todd is in 1988, if you ever one slide, he is arrested for rape. He is arrested for rape. Uh, to be fair, he had long since been deplatformed by most legitimate churches, mainstream churches, uh, because of his behavior towards young women. He was always very creepy towards young women. Uh, he also had a penchant for uh, bringing a gun in during his sermons. Basically, his sermons turned into like rambling diatribes against, uh, you know, whatever satanic ill he said is going through. Um, but he'd also wave a gun around during the sermons. That's not really something that's good. Um, he does stay in prison until his death. Basically, uh, Todd dies. Not, he doesn't stay in prison too long because he dies. But he's weirdly admired by a lot of circles in the evangelical world, most notably Jack Click, uh, Jack Chick, who if you go over back one slide, you will see uh, Jack Chick comics. Um, these are like little religious tracts, little religious booklets that uh, theoretically you know, present the gospel of Jesus or whatever, but sometimes uh, Jack Chick like goes on some kind of unhinged conspiracies. Uh, Todd is used as a primary source for like all of these. Um, if you've ever heard an anecdote about a high-level ex-Satan priest uh, followed by a conspiracy theory uh, at a religious setting, 99% they're probably saying that something that uh, Todd said. Now, uh, why was he still viewed as credible by some of these religious people, even though he's pretty unhinged? They're like, oh my god, that just shows the Illuminati is real, that uh, they got to him, or that uh, you know Satan undermined him, telling the truth. So it kind of plays into underlying beliefs that people already have. And so even though, you know, the particulars were suspect, there's a general feeling of Satan's influence was felt in some Christian circles, and they're ready once the panic started in the 80s with their own bevy of experts. Now, Todd's accusations, if you go over one slide, go over, well, a couple slides, to heavy metal, you'll see this kind of picture. Uh, Todd's accusation against the music business, uh, particularly Christian and secular music business, had their own history in the 1970s, very fertile ground. This is not full on the satanic panic, but, like, there are elements that had been kind of underlying. Uh, rock music for a very long time had been accused of being the devil's music. I mean, shoot, the blues was called the devil's music, uh, thanks to things like the legend of uh, Robert Johnson. If you look over, they say satanic music product of the panic, uh, look over the top left, there's a picture of Robert Johnson. He is a uh, African-American blues musician. Not too much is known about Robert Johnson. We only have like three photographs of him. Actually, I think there's two. They just proved that a third one was was of, of him. He dies very young. Um, he has more of an influence after death than he does in life. He does influence a lot of blues music. But basically, the, the, the legend goes that he sold his soul to the devil for the ability to play the guitar. Uh, in reality, he probably just never really recorded or played more before he like got to Memphis and like Roadhouses and the Delta and people actually heard him. But it's this idea that, oh my gosh, this kid comes from nowhere. And I should mention, he dies very young. I want to say he's like 23, 24 years old when he dies. So, like, that, there's elements of that. But rock music in particular had a lot of, like, accusations of being the devil's music. Uh, mainly to do with, like, race. You know, this idea that, oh my gosh, it's African Americans getting involved with it. Um, also sexuality. Rock music was viewed as, uh, you know, kind of sexual. Uh, still, most of the young people, most of the boomers uh, who who grow up listening to the rock music, they don't feel it's all too problematic. They don't think it's that bad. This does grow with songs, though. Like, for instance, the Rolling Stones put out a song called Sympathy for the Devil, and they also have an album called Their Satanic... Sorry. Their Satanic Majesty's Request comes out in the 60s. You could argue that stuff is more rejection of Christianity or, like, their youth being, like, you know, British 
um, you know, altar boys or whatever, than having like an embrace of the devil. Uh, even the Beatles get involved with this because of uh, Charles Manson. Uh, basically, Charles Manson used the title of the Beatles song Helter Skelter. Uh, basically, Manson cl- claimed that elements of the White Album gave him say, uh, subliminal messages. This idea that there are messages hidden in records uh, to give you all sorts of uh, you know horrible ideas. Um. You know, like, Charles Manson probably shouldn't have been listened to. Not exactly an authority. He's a crazy person. But his followers did write the, you know, Beatles titles with their victim's blood. They're in the Sharon Tate murder, so that's, you know, that's suspect. And also, nobody lo- does like the hippies, so, like, you know, mainstream society never really cares for the hippies, so, of course, you know, eh, who cares about the hippies? Now, what really kind of gets this heavy metal, this satanic stuff going on, if you ever one slide, you will see Black Sabbath. You'll see Black Sabbath, and you'll see Osborne. Yes, uh, Black Sabbath. They released their first titled uh, first sell ah their first album, which is self titled, in 1970, and it goes very heavy on the horror element. Basically, like it's very theatrical, kind of a rejection of the peace and love thing. It's like, hey, there's all this peace and love music out there, but. You know, if you look at the Cold War in Vietnam, not a lot of peace and love going on there, so let's kind of go for, like, a horror shtick. It's very campy. It's not realistic. Uh, very theatrical. But it probably does get popular because of the, quote-unquote, evil nature of it. Because it is so dark. Just like watching a horror movie or something. Uh, the members of Black Sabbath were almost certainly not satanic. They were just showmen who saw that, eh, there was a good place to go for it. Uh, as Black Sabbath gets popular, there's more metalish acts that come out early metal acts, if you go with groups like Kiss and Judas Priest, uh, both of whom have like theatrical elements, also some horror elements. I remember for the longest time people told me that Kiss stood for Knights and Satan Service, this idea that, oh my gosh, they're satanic, you know, Judas Priest has to be satanic. Um, this is a huge ground for new accusations. Like, it's one thing when you're talking about like subliminal messages, like Oh, if you play the record backwards, it's going to have all sorts of like evil messages. And it's another thing whenever it's very blatant, like very blatant imagery about like, you know, horror elements. And to add to the equation, you have something like MTV, which is now showing music videos. It's showing music videos with all this quote unquote evil imagery to teenaged audiences. You know, teenagers want to have their MTV. They want to watch MTV. This also plays into parental guilt because of latchkey kids. This idea that, you know, stay-at-home moms, they could stay at home and make sure their children are watching good TV, but, oh my gosh, little Johnny or Timmy comes home from school and he turns on MTV and he just sees all this filth because mommy's not at home. So now there's even more fear that, oh my gosh, even your house is not safe from this corruptive influence. You know, you don't have to go to a... You don't have to go to a, a satanic daycare for the devil to get your children. You could just watch TV, that sort of shtick. There's more metal bands that come out during the 80s. Your groups like your Motley Crue, Guns N' Roses, Quiet Riot, Def Leppard, Led Zeppelin, Metallica, all of which have elements of imagery, theatrics that are dark. It's dark. And the satanic panickers, they all claim that the music is a recruitment tool for Satanists to lead teens into their coven. You're going to hear that a lot. This idea that, oh my gosh, children are coming to Satanism because of rock music. And what's their proof? Well, they've got eyewitness testimony from people like Wernke and Todd. So, when the, like I said, when the panic goes mainstream, 
Evangelicals have their own slates of experts who have been preaching this, no pun intended, for almost a decade. Now, all this really mania reaches its apex with the Parent Music Resource Group. If you go over one slide, you will see the Parent Music Resource Group. Center, sorry. The Parent Music Resource Center. It's a group of politically active moms. They're pretty much all like senators or congresspeople, spouses, uh, led by Tipper Gore. Led by Tipper Gore, who is the wife of Al Gore. He's not vice president yet. He's just a very powerful senator from Tennessee. And basically they say they want to protect children from evil music, from evil and occult music. If you look over there on the right, you're going to see their list, The Filthy 15. The Filthy 15, all sorts of songs that they say are like either explicit because they're overly sexual or it's satanic or what have you. They say these are the worst 15 songs out there. Oh my gosh, they're, you know, some of them are violent, some of them are X-rated, they're demonic, whatever you want to call it. And because they are the spouses of Congress people, uh, they're able to use their influence to get a congressional inquiry. They get a congressional inquiry. They get a bunch of musicians to come and testify about their music. Are they, are they not Satanists? If you ever one slide, you will see probably the three biggest names who testify. Uh, Frank Zappa, who is a musician, who he's not really that much of a metal guy, I don't think, but he testifies, I guess, because he's not white. He's ethnic. Ooh, scary. Uh, Dee Schneider, who is a metal musician, he actually testifies in costume, um, which elements of Twisted Sister have elements of uh, cross-dressing, that sort of shtick. He does probably the, 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 the best in, in regards to this, where he's basically he's like, I'm a musician, I'm not a Satanist, I, you know, this is just an act. Uh, the one that the, they actually kind of backfires is John Denver. Uh, John Denver has gotten by Tipper Gore and the other members of the Parent Music Resource Center to be the uh, like the voice of reason, like he's going to be the one who's going to talk against all these horrible Satanists, and they don't expect what John Vinder, Jen, what John Denver does, which is basically, no, this is stupid. Like these are these guys are musicians. It's all artistic expression, First Amendment, whatever you want to call it. It's all fine. Still, the Recording Industry Association of America, the RIAA, that's kind of the governing body of record labels. Uh, they voluntarily agree to some sort of self-regulation before the government imposes it. Uh, that's something that video game companies were going to do later on, end up doing later on. Um, like Movies are, are rated by, I don't even know if movies are rated by the government anymore. I think they are. I think the movie, yeah, the Muslim Picture Association of America, that's a government agency. Um, the RIIA is like, look, we're going to self-regulate before you know we get government regulation. We don't want government regulation. The compromise they get, if you go over one slide, is the parental advisory sticker. You might be familiar with it. Probably not as familiar as it as you once were if you're younger, like I, sorry, if you're older, like I am. You remember this being on CDs or what have you. Uh, some, st some states pass laws that selling these records or having possession of these records as a minor or to a minor, that could be a felony. Does this backfire? Yes. <laughs> Do you not think that, like, Putting this sticker on a record or a CD is going to make it like catnip to teenage customers. You're an idiot if you think otherwise. So, like, you know, a record that the government says is a crime, like, how much street cred is that going to give you? Likewise, how much free publicity are you going to get if you're like, hey, this record is so badass that the the government doesn't want you to hear it? Oh my gosh, that is going to get you so much, like, so much sales. 
So ironically, these records become more popular. People want to hear the, you know, the explicit version, the uh, parental advisory sticker. They sell more, they become more popular, which makes it circular logic because the religious types are now saying, oh my gosh, this is proof of the evidence of the influence of Satan and the corruption of the world. Now, are these musicians actually satanic? Uh, I, I feel safe saying that's a hard no. If you give her one slide, you're going to see one of my favorite comics ever, really, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, but a strip about it. And I think this really embodies, like, if you think logically about this whole stuff, even for a second, it, it makes sense. This idea that, you know, these bands, they're, they're in it for the money like everybody else. They're in it for the money like everybody else. These bands want free publicity, and saying the government, basically the government saying that your stuff is a crime, that's amazing publicity. Now, here's the thing, though. By the time we get to the 90s, um, most of these, like, metal and glam bands, or even call it heavy metal bands, they are out of fashion. Uh, stuff like grunge music had stripped away the theatrics, and you don't have these kind of exact, um, you know, kind of these accusations about grunge music, you know, and the main thing you hear about them is, like, take a shower, or you can't understand what they're saying. Uh, but the accusations against the uh, record industry, that continues well into evangelical circles. Uh, throughout my childhood, I remember like more evangelical types saying things about that. But as big as that all was, nothing, and I mean nothing, comes as close as being like the king of corrupting and being evil to children is Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, Dungeons & Dragons is by far the biggest of the, oh my gosh, is this possibly evil satanic panic materials. So despite becoming the, the poster child of, oh my gosh, evil devil stuff, um, if you're unfamiliar with Dungeons and Dragons, it's kind of a cross between war games and playing pretend. Um, it really, actually, that's what it really started out as. If you go over one slide, you're going to see the original players of Dungeons and Dragons, which are a bunch of nerds. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, they're a bunch of like middle-aged nerds who like all have jobs and wives and stuff. Basically, this is Gary Gygax's game group. Basically, it's a game group who are interested in war games. Uh, war games have been around for a very long time. Um, you know, imagine, like, uh, those little metal figurines where you can, like, battle out the Battle of Waterloo or whatever. Those have been around for hundreds of years, honestly. And so it starts out as a game group that they play these kind of war games. But uh, Gygax is the one who really starts bringing on, if you go over one slide, you'll see Gary Gygax. Gary Gygax is the one on the right with the mustache and beard. They both have mustaches and beards. He's the one on the right. Uh, the one on the left is Dave Arneson. Uh, Gygax is the one who brings in, like, the fantasy elements. Uh, brings in fantasy elements like, you know, wizards and whatnot. Uh, pretty much by ripping off Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, yeah, the original Dungeons and Dragons is nothing but Lord of the Rings ripoffs. Nothing but Lord of the Rings ripoffs, which is, you know, understandable because, well, you know, it's the 60s and the early 70s. Lord of the Rings is pretty popular. But the guy who actually invents, like, the nuts and bolts of the game, like the mechanics, is Dave Arneson. Now, Gygax and Arneson would later have a falling out. Uh, for most of you know D&D's presentation, it was always presented that Gygax was going to invent it by himself. In, in modern years, though, um, Arneson has passed away a while back. Uh, Gygax died relatively recently. Gygax died, I want to say, in the last 10 years. They do have a private falling out, but in, in time, you know, there is some, you know, the, the company has recognized that Arneson had a lot to do with the mechanics of the game. But, like, the kind of the... You know, the, the, the whole orcs and wizards element of it, that definitely comes from Gygax, who is pretty much ripping off Lord of the Rings. So 
so it starts out as just a little game they play in their game group, uh, just like a kind of a, a mod or a modification for a war game as they're like kind of playing pretend, as they're like, oh, maybe you're a wizard or something. It gets, you know, their, their group likes it. They kind of hone it a little bit. And so in 1974, they publish it. They publish their game, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, um, on a... It's a private fantasy game. They published a first edition, actually, from their own company. Uh, it's their own publisher. It's a series of a couple of books. They start a company called Tactical 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 Studies Rules, basically TSR. It's always called TSR. Uh, basically, they can't find another publisher for it. None of the other game companies want to do it. So basically, Gygax and another guy, not Arnson, they put together their own company. Uh, the title, the name Dungeons & Dragons, comes from uh, Gygax's daughter. Uh, basically, Gygax's daughter was given a name, a list of names, for possible names for this game, and she said, yeah, Dungeons & Dragons says the best. Uh, I, I, should, I should mention, it's not very popular. <laughs> the first edition is not very popular. It very modest success, very modest, modest, modest success. They're pretty much only targeting to war gamers, like people who do like having little metal figurines of Napoleon's armies or whatever. But the big development happens three years later in 1977, if you've ever one slide, when there's a new edition. They basically make a new edition. It's like, you know what, maybe we could gussy it up a little bit, make it a little fancier. But more importantly, they segment the game into two elements. They have basic, which is more interested on storytelling, very novice friendly, and advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And advanced Dungeons and Dragons, you can see those are the three books on the right. The basic rules are on the left. Theoretically, you could just have the basic rule book and have a good time, just kind of playing pretend. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons includes things like the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Player's Handbook, the Monster Manual, that sort of shtick. Advanced has way more structure, it has way more rules, and was more appealing to nerds. And by and large, this becomes the main Dungeons & Dragons that people know. Now, the other thing that TSR starts doing once they have the second edition is they start really supplementing it with other publications and modules. This idea that, you know, yes, you only have to buy the, you know, the, the base set once, but you'll constantly be buying other modules, which are going to have, like, you know, different scenarios, new concepts, new setting. And that really becomes the basis of their business model. This gets more popular, and it's mainly spreading around the upper Midwest around Wisconsin. I, I should mention, Gygax and his gang group, they're in Wisconsin. I like Geneva's main place where he has his vacation house. Gen Con later becomes a big gaming convention. And so as it spreads throughout the upper Midwest, kind of around Wisconsin, you know, Michigan, Illinois, that sort of place, um, it's mainly going into, they're mainly targeting the people who are most likely to play this game, which would be nerds and college students, basically people who already have an interest in it anyway. Now what happens when one of these college nerds starts playing it, and then something tragic happens, that becomes the first time that most people ever hear of D&D, &D, and how it gets its bad reputation almost immediately. So the first time that most people ever hear Dungeons & Dragons is in 1979, when James Egbert, who is a 16-year-old student at uh, Michigan State, he goes missing for about a month. Now, Egbert is a prodigy. He's a prodigy. He graduates high school early. He ends up in college, uh, Michigan State, kind of early. Uh, he's, from, he's from the area. He's from the area, so East Lansing. So, you know, he kind of lives at home. And then he doesn't live at home because he wants to live in the dorms because he feels kind of isolated. He doesn't like his parents too much. Um, 
Egbert's got problems. He's got problems. Uh, he's got severe depression. He has a drug addiction. And this probably is all rooted because he was a homosexual. He was a homosexual at a time when uh, being gay and being out was not something seen as acceptable. Um, his parents were not very kind about him being gay. Apparently, they tried to do things to make him stop being gay. And he had a really rough time with it. And apparently, he was suicidal. And so after writing a suicide note, he went, he goes into the steam tunnels underneath the school, underneath, uh, underneath, um, underneath Michigan State. There's a bunch of steam tunnels. Uh, he take, he overdoses. He basically touches a bunch of quaaludes and he's basically hoping to OD himself to death. He's basically hoping to overdose himself to death. Um, he does not die. He does not die. He, he wakes up after his overdose. Whenever he wakes up, he's embarrassed. You know, he's like, oh my God, my parents saw my suicide note. Everybody thinks I'm dead. So everybody decides that, you know what, I'm going to go into hiding at my friend's house around East um, Lansing. So basically, he's hiding at a friend's house, a couple friends' houses, trying to lay low. He's embarrassed. You know, he's like, my parents don't like me, that sort of shtick. Now, when his parents hear that, you know, he wrote a suicide note and he went missing, they were understandably, you know, concerned. And they end up trying to, they end up not even trying, they end up hiring a private investigator, private investigator by the name of William Deere. Now, here's the thing. Deere, you know, he's a PI. The cops, they're like, you know, this seems to be an open and shut case. You know, body might be found somewhere. But his parents were like, it's weird that we can't find the body, that sort of shtick. And so William Deere, like, kind of asked around the campus. He asked around Michigan State, asked, you know, what friends that Egbert has. Um, hey, what can you tell me about him? That sort of thing. And then basically his friends were like, hey, um, you know, he does play Dungeons and Dragons. He plays Dungeons and Dragons. You know, he doesn't do that much. I mean, he's a smart guy, but, you know, school seems to be hard to him. He's not very social, but he does play Dungeons and Dragons, you know. And so Deer knows nothing about Dungeons and Dragons. This is the first time he's ever heard about it. And so he kind of publicly theorized because, you know, this is kind of a small news story at first. That uh, maybe Egbert thought the game was real. You know, maybe he had a mental breakdown and, like, he thought that maybe he died in the game and, like, he, you know, he, he thought it was happening in real life. Or possibly he got lost because he also finds out that sometimes students would play Dungeons and Dragons in the sewers underneath um, Michigan State. Basically, this idea would be a fun, you know, it's an atmospheric place to play D&D. This makes it go to wildfire. This is now the first public introduction to the game. So the first time that most people you ever hear about Dungeons and Dragons, unless they're like a big time nerd around, you know, Minnesota or Wisconsin, you've never heard of Dungeons and Dragons. This makes it national news because it's basically said, oh, my gosh, there's a game that made a kid go nuts. Like, oh, my God, there's a, there's this game out there that made that the kid was convinced it's real. Oh, my gosh. You know, they're ignoring the depression. They're ignoring the drug abuse. They're ignoring all the other elements. You know, the fact that he's a homosexual who's having a hard time coming to grips with that. They're like, nope, 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 nope. It's all this horrible devil game. This game he was convinced was real. I'm not even say devil game. Just like this game might be bad for psychological purposes. That, that's something that it's um, really pushed is this idea that it's not good for psychology, psychological purposes. They confuse fancy and reality. Now, the rest of Egbert's story is actually pretty sad. Um, his, his rest of his story is pretty sad. Um, he ends up fleeing to New Orleans. He ends up fleeing to New Orleans. He lives in New Orleans. He actually stays around here for a while. Um, he's in Morgan City for a while. Go figure. Uh, just kind of a general laborer. However, whenever he sees news stories about it, he doesn't want to contact his parents because he's embarrassed, or maybe he's like, he doesn't feel like his parents accept him. So he, he contacts Deer, and he's like, look, I don't want to go back to my parents, and I'm going to tell you what happened, but please don't tell anybody about this. 
And uh, Egbert eventually ends up going to his uncle's house. He ends up going to his uncle's house. Um, Sadly, though, Egbert ends up committing suicide less than a year later. Less than a year later, Egbert commits suicide when he's about, like, 17, 18 years old. Um, And so while all these news stories are coming out, and and William Deere knows the truth. William Deere knows the truth. When all these news stories are coming out, you know, talking about, oh, my God, Dungeons and Dragons or whatever, um, Deer doesn't say anything. Yes, Deer was the one who's like, man, maybe Dungeons and Dragons did it. But like, whenever he learns that, no, this is what actually happened to Egbert, he doesn't say anything. More than likely, this is just conjecture, more than likely is because Egbert told Deer that he was homosexual. And he didn't want that to be come out. So like, he basically, you know, Egbert said, you know, hey, I'm gay. That's why I did all this stuff. Please don't tell anybody I'm gay. It'll, you know, ruin my life. And so Deer promised not to tell anybody. Which is why Deer doesn't initially respond to the what ends up happening to um, it, particularly with the fictionalization of things like mazes and monsters. Go over one slide. Let's talk mazes and monsters. Yes. This story gets fictionalized by a bunch of different people, a bunch of different places fictionalize this story. The big one, though, is a book called Mazes and Monsters, which, like, it... it it treats interest in fantasy games as like a cry for help from a like neurotic mind. It's this idea that, you know, only people who are mentally unstable or can't accept reality really get into these fantasy games. And the mo- the book was so popular, it got made into a really crappy made-for-TV movie, which I'm not going to recommend. It's awful, but also happens to be Tom Hanks's first starring role. Um, it's not a good movie. I think you see some pictures of there of Tom Hanks. Uh, you know, America's sweetheart acting as the the guy who goes mentally insane playing this playing this game because he's convinced it's real. Even though the movie is total trite, um, it cements in a lot of people's mind that like the game is psychologically damaging and like it could hurt people. And they're not really going satanic yet, but like that parental advisory sticker, this makes the game way more popular. Like sales of the game more than sex tuple. Uh, TSR is producing even more stuff. Uh, yes, they are, you know, dadging accusations that it is damaging psychologically. Uh, it's still like catnip for consumers. I mean, seriously, wouldn't you want to play the game that makes people go crazy? Like, come on. I can't reiterate though, not too much about the Satanism stuff. Uh, probably because Gaiax himself, he's a practicing Jehovah's Witness. He's married. And most of the like the leadership of TSR and most of the people who play this, like the original gamers, they're like techies and former military guys. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of former military guys involved in the early days of Dungeons and Dragons, and honestly, in the wargaming scene, which makes sense because you know it's war games. Like, you know, soldiers might be interested into that. This changes though what happens with Irving pulling. If you go over one slide, you'll see Patricia pulling. That's his mom. Uh, in 1982, Irving pulling committed suicide. Uh, he committed suicide for. Um, we don't really know the reasons, but he committed suicide. And basically his mom, who's distraught, understandably, your son committed suicide. Uh, she claims that it's because he got cursed in the game and he thought it was real. Basically, he's like, he played Dungeons and Dragons and he must have like played the game once and something bad happened to him in the game and it was real. And because it, he thought it was real, uh, he killed himself because he just couldn't handle it. Now, she accuses a lot of people of being bad things. She sues a lot of people including her uh, her son's high school principal and also uh, the company of TSR, uh, basically, you know, is basically they are responsible for his death. The case does get dismissed in 1984 because, you know, there's no merit to it. That said, though, she gets a lot of attention. She gets a lot of attention, and she forms a new group called BAD. Uh, BAD. Uh, Bothered About Dungeons & Dragons. It's a variation of MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, where she goes even further. 
She doesn't claim that the game is just psychologically risky. She says it is straight up satanic. She has a handbook. I, I You can see copies of this handbook where basically she lists all the elements of the game that she viewed were anti-Christian, like spells and, and types of monsters. He's like, oh my God, these are satanic, these are evil. Sorry, that's me closing the door, not a, not a ghost. Like, she's insinuating the game did evil things and that her son's death was proof. Like, you know, the, the game is loaded with all these evil things, all these witches and monsters and, you know, demons and whatnot. And so she's like, look, at, at best, TSR and Gygax got duped by Satan. At worst, they are in league with the devil. Now, in response, later editions of the game got rid of the most of the rid of the most overt relation references to religion. Uh, earlier, earlier versions of Dungeons and Dragons do talk about religion a bit more overtly. Uh, some of the some of the like deities or like names of actual gods, not like God God, but no, no, like deities, various Hindu deities and stuff. There's no there's no D and D character called like Jesus or Satan though. I think there's like a Lucifer or something in some of the earlier ones. Also, they get rid of things like angels. Some of the earlier editions of Dungeons and Dragons have angels and divination. The idea that you can have, you know, God contact stuff for you. But the controversy does still stand. Now, Pulling is going to spend the rest of her life, uh, she actually dies in 2009, telling anybody who would listen how evil Dungeons and Dragons is. Now, to be fair, she lost her son, and, and losing your child is very understandable in its sense of power in making somebody into a fanatic. Now, her words find fertile ground in evangelical circles, who we've talked about before, are already using this sort of thing. They use Pulling's words as evidence. Uh, for instance, probably the most infamous of this is the Jack Chick track of Dark Dungeons. Dark Dungeons, which basically says... Um, this little girl starts playing Dungeons and Dragons and her dungeon master is actually a witch who's like, wow, you're really good at this. Let's join a coven. This idea that uh, Dungeons and Dragons can make you turn into, you know, a, you know, get you involved in this sort of witchcraft. Um, and at the end, uh, you know, the little girl commits suicide because she dies in the game. And like, oh, she could cast real spells. And, and this is all this evidence that, like, Satan is corrupting the youth. Like, oh, my gosh, they're being so overt about this. They're casting spells at each other. What are they doing in those dark basements? Now, for his part, uh, Gygax wants to, like, give D&D some good publicity. He's like, maybe I can make a movie out of it, or how about a TV show? And he's like, I can give the intellectual property some good publicity. You know, it, it is super popular, but it was seen as kind of unwholesome. He's like, you know what? If I, if I make a TV show or a movie or something about this, maybe I can improve the way it's, you know, seen. Uh, he ends up moving to Los Angeles and then divorcing his wife and, by his own admission, doing a lot of cocaine. Uh, while making a cartoon based upon Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, he makes a cartoon based upon Dungeons and Dragons in 1983, which does not help anything. Uh, the show itself is about how some kids who are playing the game Dungeons and Dragons, actually, they're not even playing the game Dungeons and Dragons, they're on a roller coaster called Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, they get transported to a magical world where the game is real, which, by the way, is kind of the worst thing to happen, according to all the people against Dungeons and Dragons, is that, oh my god, kids are going to think it's real. This does nothing to help against, against accusations of the game. Uh, plus, you know, Gygax's personal life in the time period, like he's, he's a lot of cocaine, a lot of hookers, uh, does not help the defense that our creator is a boring, you know, devout Jehovah's Witness. Um, Gygax later does get sober 
And he does, you know, remarry and becomes a much more normal person, not normal, but less, you know, coked up person. Uh, he, he had said, like, my time in Los Angeles was a mistake. I, I shouldn't have been there. Like, uh, eh, you know, I just got divorced and I had a lot of money and eh, bad things happen. So that's how D&D becomes the boogeyman. That's how D&D becomes the boogeyman. Um, it gains its first notoriety because of a tragic accident. The, the mother of another sad incident becomes a crusader. The cartoon, which was made for children, oh my gosh, clutch your pills, is based upon the worst accusation of what the game does to children, and is also seen as uh, Satan's influence on the media. I, I should mention the villain in the uh, show does have a horn, kind of in a Satan area, uh, which I guess is somewhat satanic, but well in line with other imagery. And sure, he's, he's the villain, whereas evangelical types will say it's to make kids treat the devil lightly. So go figure. Uh, plus, you need to mention that, like, the people who play it for the longest time in the 80s and the 90s are like the ones who are most likely to be nerds and socially inept and therefore easy targets. It's kind of going full circle with the witch the witch uh, trials, the witch hunts hunting like slaves and women and Native Americans who are on the lower end of society. Uh, you know, the nerd types who may not be particularly socially adept or on the higher end of the social totem pole in places like high schools are more likely to be bullied and easy targets and called satanic. Uh Weirdly enough, the TV show Stranger Things does a really good job of demonstrating what D&D actually is, which is a nerd, nerdy game for nerds. They, they do a pretty good job of showing all the kids on that show play D&D. Who plays it? Nerdy kids and a metalhead like Eddie in the newest season. And also the panic, the idea that the townsfolk, oh my gosh, they're doing all sorts of horrible satanic things. It must be their, it must be their fault. Of course... Because D&D is a business trying to get money. It should not surprise you if they've come out since with, honestly, it was inevitable, the Dungeons & Dragons version of Stranger Things. Go figure. If you go over one more, we'll get into the legacy of a, of a Satanic Panic. Like all panics, the Satanic Panic doesn't really have a definitive end date. Um, elements still linger on. Like I said, with religion in America, nothing ever really goes away. Um, very much around during the 90s, that's when actually the daycare accusations go to trial, and then they get a couple convictions, which gets overturned. Mainly a lot of dismissals based upon evidence, lack of evidence, I should say. Uh, Wernke and his ilk, they still cite Dungeons and Dragons as the evidence of Satan power. Uh, granted, heavy metal had waned in popularity, and like, Kiss didn't seem as scary in the 90s. Sure, you definitely have groups like Marilyn Manson or individuals like Marilyn Manson who are like very much seen as big, scary, you know, satanic people. But he's also a former Catholic schoolboy who is a thousand percent doing it for attention. Um, you know, it's interesting. In the past two years, he started doing Sunday services with Kanye West and Justin Bieber. But that's a story for another time. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons is still seen as kind of a nerdy pastime, but most folks adopt the dramatic, the demonic parts of it, uh, particularly because like later editions remove all the overt stuff to demons. Um, for like the longest time, the term demon does not exist within the D and D uh, merchandise or, or any of their any of their materials. Uh, but you gotta admit, you know, players can easily put whatever the heck you want into the game. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons is more of a adaptable set of guidelines rather than hard and fast rules. But still, like when I was in middle school in the in the 90s, elements were still around in both the church and circular worlds. Uh, so much of the worst accusations had just kind of gone into the ether, though. It was just something that people said, and they didn't really have, like, specific examples of. You know, um, nobody remembers anything in particular about what's bad about Dungeons & Dragons. There was just a sense that, eh, Dungeons & Dragons is not that healthy for you. 
I remember at school, you know, kids who played D&D were singled out as nerds, but oftentimes they were like kind of told by well-meaning teachers, don't take it too seriously. You know, something bad might happen. Nothing overly panicky, but they're, they're, this is kind of in the ether. Uh, I did hear stuff from like more evangelical types. Um, I, I, I do have a religious background. They're basically like, you know, yeah, youth workers might say things like, oh, heavy metal might be somewhat demonic. Um, I, I've told you about the conference where they said all rock music was evil. Uh, my own parents, though, they didn't really get too much into the music, but they were hard about me not playing Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, for instance, whenever they found out one of my best friends in elementary school was playing Dungeons and Dragons, uh, when we were in middle school, he, they said I couldn't hang out with him anymore. They're like, oh, we're not okay with that. Uh, likewise, later on, uh, when I was in high school, I wanted to buy the game Diablo 2, and my dad wouldn't buy it for me because he said it had necromancy in it, which it was weird because I was 16, and also, like, you're killing devils and the demons, and you're allying with angels, and plus it's a Blizzard game because he bought me all the other ones, so go figure. Uh, they, my parents were pretty lenient about the media that I consumed, but uh, they were not very insistent about keeping me away from, uh, like, you know, occult materials. I do remember kids, though, who, like, they weren't allowed to watch the Smurfs or anything about magic because, uh, you know, they're afraid it'd lead to Satan. Uh, there are always claims of, like, you know, big suicides or big satanic rituals going on, but uh, the bodies never materialized. I always remember hearing stuff that, like, oh, stuff's going on around Baton Rouge, but, like, it never really materialized, so go figure. What really ends it is kind of the passage of time. Like I said, there, there's no real big signifiers, but if I were to pick two, I'm going to pick two right now. Uh, they're both relatively close, and they remove a lot of the stigma. The first is the release of Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, in theaters in 2001 in the winter. Uh, Lord of the Ring used to be the, the apex of a lot of nerd culture, uh, kind of their ur example, but the Peter Jackson film was accessible and, like, more importantly, it's very well made. So it kind of it softens a lot of the mocking of the, of the fantasy stuff because a lot of people do see it. I remember when I was in high school when it came out. I mean, I saw it because I was nerd Jace. But, like, I remember, like, the most popular, like, prom queen type at our school. Uh, she was in drama class with me, and she was like, yeah, I saw it. It was actually really entertaining. I was like, wow, if she liked it, all the, everybody's going to watch it because, you know, she was the coolest, you know, heartbreaker type of person. The second thing comes out in 2002. It's the premiere of a new reality show called The Osbournes, starring Ozzy Osbourne, lead singer of Black Sabbath, who had been the recipient of all sorts of crazy satanic panic rumors. Uh, shows him as being a dopey dad. Shows him as basically like he's a he's a boring dad, lives with his wife and kid, nothing to be scared of. It, it validates the defense of the satanic culture, quote unquote, like D and D and heavy matter, saying that they're actually quite ordinary and sometimes they could be of quality. That's something that a lot of defenders of these materials said. is like, look, it's nothing different than anything else. Now, we're going to end one more slide. It does have an enduring legacy, though. Uh, Pizzagate, QAnon, Illuminati talk. A lot of those things mention this idea that people in power, there's a secret group that are targeting children and that Satan is behind a lot of it. You don't have to scratch very far on the surface behind QAnon, Pizzagate, or Illuminati to find, oh, my God, it's Satan. Weirdly, though, it gets more mainstream and underground because, like, because of the Internet, it's a lot easier to disprove stuff, but it's also a lot easier to spread things around. Now, I, I should mention, I, I should mention, there are some legitimate cases here or there. Uh, for instance, in Ponchatoula, close to where I live in Ponchatoula, there was a church that did all sorts of horrible things to children, but it was like a Christian church that like turned into a cult when they made most of the leaders leave, most of the members leave, and the leadership started doing all sorts of horrible things to children. But the people who did that went to jail, and there was physical evidence of it, 
and this was the basis of a lot of things. If you ever watched the HBO show True Detective, the first season of it is based 100% off that case. So I'm not saying that it never happened, but the cases where it did happen were very well publicized and very well documented. The main legacy of the satanic panic is in the hysteria. It's the idea that, you know what, maybe one real incident or word of one real incident, that's enough to validate all sorts of things. So that will do it for the satanic panic. Uh, Hope you have a good Halloween or wherever you listen to it. All right. Bye.